Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. This is a very special Hanukkah week, and we're going to kick off the week of Hanukkah with um, two guests that we've had on before. This is also season nine, episode one, and I thought we'd uh, start the new season with a really great week. Um, so we're going to be having Faith Kramer of the book 52 Shabbats we've had on the um, podcast before, and also uh, Beth Lee for, uh, from Oh, oh My God Yummy uh, website. I'm um, really happy to have them back. Um, I've just really just enjoyed having any chance to talk to both of them again. Having them both on today together was just a treat hearing them uh, talk to each other. And just I just really love this episode. I have a very warm space in my heart from it. Um, if you're not familiar with uh, Beth Lee, she grew up on the East Coast before moving her family to Northern California, thousands of miles away from the traditional Jewish food she was raised on. She attended the University of California, Berkeley, where she received a degree in business and later pursued a marketing career in Silicon Valley. In 2010, Beth realized she preferred pita chips to computer chips and launched her own food blog, Oh My God Yummy. Through her blog, she reconnected with her love of cooking and her passion for documenting her family's multicultural food traditions. Beth Lee has been featured in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, San Jose Mercury News, as well as many blogs and podcasts, including KCRW's Good Food. She also co-leads a popular virtual cooking group, Tasting Jerusalem, focused on Middle Eastern cuisines and ingredients. I'm so happy to have Beth on the program again. Also uh, here today is Faith Kramer, who is a food writer and recipe developer, concentrating on the foodways, history, and customs of the Jewish diaspora. She develops recipes and writes about Jewish customs and food, as well as travel and global ingredients. As a columnist for Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California, she writes articles on food and cooking along with original recipes. Faith has taught cooking classes on food from around the world, presenting programs on Jewish customs, celebrations, and holidays, and led food-related walking tours that explore the economic, geographic, and political underpinnings of the food, as well as how to use international ingredients in their um, contents. She lives with her family in San Francisco Bay Area. So we're going to go right to this uh, wonderful a podcast where you get to have these two wonderful authors on uh, talking about Hanukkah. I hope you would love this as much as I loved making it. Um, I just really had a great time. This is very special to me. I think it's going to stand out in my memory of all my podcasts is one of my favorite. Without any other ado, I'm going to go ahead and go right to it so you can listen to this great thing. And I just want to also remind you that we're going to have a week of um, guests on this week that are going to be all about Hanukkah. We're going to have um, Beth Lee tomorrow, Faith Creamer the day after, and we're going to have more guests later this week. So stick around this week. We're going to have a lot of good stuff. And also, um, if you celebrate Hanukkah, I want to wish you and your family a very happy Hanukkah. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I want to welcome you to a very special podcast today. I'm speaking with two authors I've had on the program before who are very much welcome back. Beth, Faith, thank you for both for coming back to the podcast. Yeah, Nice to be here. So, so glad to be back again, Dean. Thanks for having us. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with Hanukkah or may have little understanding of it, can you tell us both, tell us in your own words about the holiday and what it means to you? Um, Beth, why don't you go first? Sure. So I always say to people for that Hanukkah to me is, it's not in the context of Jewish holidays, the big important holiday um, 
as maybe Christmas is to, and, and other holidays at this time of year are to people who celebrate that. It's really, it's kind of a joyful holiday that happens to fall usually near Christmas and therefore is a great opportunity for families to offer something really fun, especially to kids. Um, to do it this time of year, at least for me, again, this is my perspective, I have always lived in places that were not predominantly Jewish. And so while everybody else was taking their two weeks off from school and decorating their trees and all that, I was never participating in that directly in my family, which is fine. And Hanukkah for many people is just an opportunity to remember a wonderful story, whether it's completely true or not, of something that happened a long time ago that revolves around eight nights of miraculous oil. And it's a great chance to get together for me with friends and family, light candles, tell this story, share my Judaism with other people, um, and for kids, it's super fun. You play dreidel, you light candles, you get gifts, you eat fried foods. It's, it's just a joyous occasion and it's a great story, whether it's all true or not. So uh, this is Faith. I grew up in the greater New York metropolitan area where there were a lot of Jews and Hanukkah was a big deal. I mean, it, stores would be, you it, stores would be have, like have the, I think they had a ratio of like two Christmas displays for one Hanukkah window you know I mean they, it was it was all over and everywhere and um so I didn't grow up with a sense of of that this was a minor holiday I didn't grow up with anything but the but the kind of the, the magic of the lighting the candles, getting the gifts. Although you're in my house, you were just as likely to get a pair of socks or office supplies as something really cool, like a toy. Um, and, um, and of course the lockers. And my mother was very, very proud that she used a blender to make her lockers where my grandmother had hand graded her lockers. And I'll never forget, I was out playing. She called me in and she said, oh, I have some milkshake. Do you want some? It was not a milkshake. It was blended <laughs> potato, but you know, it was fun. It was, I really associated more with childhood than I did as an adult, but as an adult, I started learning more about the, um, the meaning behind Hanukkah and the story behind Hanukkah about assimilation and independence and religious freedom and the, the Maccabees and the Maccabees relationship to the rabbis. And I started going down that path. And then when I started studying Jewish food history, I became entranced with all the different variations on fried foods, on dairy foods, on celebratory foods that are used for Hanukkah. And I guess now I'm grateful it's eight days because I could do eight different kinds of Hanukkah menus. That's, that's awesome. And that, that's, this is Beth. I just, I love, I love sort of the difference of, because of how we grew up, but uh, I agree with um, Faith completely that there is so much more that I've learned about the holiday as an adult, especially through the lens of food. And, uh, and, I, and I really now I, I just love the, I love the light. Um, I, I just, I really love the light and the magic, even inviting neighbors over who don't celebrate Hanukkah normally and are so thrilled to stand there and say the prayers and light the candles and hear the stories. Uh, it's, 
it's a little mini magical moment. And if I may share with my beloved dog who is not with us anymore, he would stand there and insist on being picked up and stare at the candles as we lit them too. I, 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 I swear this is true. And we took oh, pictures wow. of it. So the, the, the lighting of the candles to me and watching the, the Hanukkah each night as we add another light to it is, it, it never, that is never a dull or, or overdone moment for me. I love it. You know, no, Dean, can I take a minute and let's define some things for some of your listeners who may not have grown up with these traditions. Right. Okay, right. so the, the, the base story that all of us grew up as kids and have discovered alternative meanings to now that we're adults is that there was a civil, um, the uh, um, Anishwas, who was um, a Syrian general, um, a Syrian Greek general, um, took over the, um, what is now, you know, uh, the traditional land uh, is, you know, Israel and Judea. And he prohibited, um, he, he, they, he prohibited the Jewish worship. And some people went along with it because they, you know, these are the conquerors and this is what you have to do. And the family known as the Maccabees, which means the hammers, <laughs> um, uh, started a civil war um, against this assimilation and against this uh, religious intolerance, and eventually they won. And when they won, they went to relight the menorah in the temple, the the, the famous temple in, in Jerusalem. And they only had enough light for one night, and it would take eight days to get more oil. And supposedly the oil lasted all eight days. So that's why a menorah is part of our Hanukkah celebration and we light candles and we light eight candles with one helper candle called the Shvas um, to um, commemorate this. Um, a traditional Jewish menorah that you might just see as a decoration would only have, um, you'd only have seven candles to light on it. So the special Hanukkah menorah is called a Hanukkah, which is the word Beth just used. Um, no. We talked about dreidel, which is a top game. It's a, and the top has five sides, Beth. Am I remembering that right? And in four, it, four. Four, four sides. And each side um, tells you to put in some, you know, your wager, take out half a wager, whatever it is. And it's a game that's often played with chocolate candies wrapped to look like coins, which are called gelt. Um, what else do we touch on that, that people might not know instinctively? Well, um, as other things wow. come up, yeah, and, and, Beth and I will yeah. pop in and we'll define yeah. things. Yep. Yeah. Thank, yeah. Thanks, Faith. That was great. Okay. And so because of the oil, foods fried in oil, like potato pancakes known as lakas, are traditional because Beth mentioned about frying foods, fried foods, um, as well as dairy foods are traditional. Um, and the dairy foods come from another tradition in the 13 or 1400s some rat, a lot of the original text didn't exist in Eastern Europe anymore. And some, some sage or rabbi somewhere misunderstood when the story of Judith happened and put it as part of the Hanukkah uh, and Maccabee revolt when it belonged in a different time period. But because of the, uh, because of dairy foods became kind of meshed with the holiday, it just stayed there, whether the story did or not. So it's not just for everyone listening, it's this is Beth, it's not just that sour cream tastes fantastic with a crispy potato latke, but it's actually a traditional thing to eat. 
Yeah. Unless of course you're keeping kosher and you're eating brisket or chicken or something like that for dinner, then you have to use your applesauce. And, and kosher <laughs> refers to the Jewish dietary laws that separates meat and cheese among other things. Do either of you have any uh, specific fond memories or stories from your childhood celebrating Hanukkah? Besides slipping down my mother's potato mashed, but you know, shredded <laughs> Um, I, I'll give you a second. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I just like being here with my family. My husband always turns off all the lights and we just sit and stare for like 10 minutes at the, at the there's something about the darkness of winter here in the Northern hemisphere and having the lights go. And I think that's why there are so many holidays that happen in the winter, because we need that light. We need that remembrance of, of light. Absolutely. Yep. And yeah, for me, this is Beth. I, I, um, I think I have stronger memories of uh, Hanukkah with my kids um, than I do as a child. Cause really for me, it was not, we didn't really make that big a deal about it in my home when I was a child. Uh, but we have always done, you know, uh, various events with our own family, with our friends that we call family. And really though, I, I think what is most impactful to me is is watching the the Hanukkah, the menorah lit with an extra, you know, a new candle every night, and and without fail every year I turn the lights off. I try to get the most beautiful picture of it I can. I just love watching the candles burn. Do either of you have different uh, traditions now that you have um, families that you had when you were younger? You know, this this is Beth. So really, in a way, yes, uh, because I, I honestly, we really didn't make much of it when I was a kid, at least not that I can remember. And we were just far enough away from the rest of our family. So we were in Western Massachusetts and the rest of the mom's family, she had five brothers and sisters and all the aunts and uncles and cousins. Uh, they were just far enough away that we didn't really spend Hanukkah with them. So uh, I think we we really pushed it a lot more in our home to our kids when they were younger. I used to always go into their classrooms in their schools. And actually I just bought my grandniece, uh, my absolute favorite Hanukkah book, The Hanukkah Bear, which I used to bring in Every year I'd bring in uh, a little dreidel that Faith was talking about earlier and some gelt, had to make sure it was peanut free, gelt, a dreidel, and then I would read um, the Hanukkah bear book and everybody enjoyed that. And I loved doing that. I just, and, and now I think I, you know, we still get together with family always for Hanukkah and um, well, we, we, we skipped the last couple of years, but this year we're doing it again. And, and then we have our friends who are kind of, you know, our Havara family, our, 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 um, and we get together with them. Sometimes we all bring our Hanukkahs and put them around the table, try not to burn down the house and watch, you know, 10 or 12 of them burn at the same time. You know, love, just love, love doing it. It's really, for me, it's about being with friends and family and, and, and oftentimes, as I say, sharing it with neighbors who don't know the traditions and absolutely love to be a part of it. Nice. Thank you. 
I would say growing up, you know, we had a electric menorah in the window. So we got to turn, you know, we'd fight over who got to turn the, the bulb. So it would go on that night. And my mother had her traditional, um, like a candle menorah that I don't know, maybe it was a wedding present or something. I don't know. And we had that. And I still remember it sitting on its piece of aluminum foil. But the only food that was ever made was was the potato pancakes, the latkes, and mom would make that with a, a saucy pot roast or brisket. And I still do that. Um, but I've I've gone down the path of finding out all these other kinds of Hanukkah foods or foods that are kind of celebratory for different reasons. So um, I might also make my challah fritters from 52 Shabbat's cookbook, um, or, or I might make... Um, um, a souffignot jelly donuts. And I was, I already had kids in like kindergarten or first grade when I found out you could do jelly donuts for um, Hanukkah. It wasn't as prevalent as it is now on the West Coast. And I thought I never have to drag my electric fry pan into a classroom and make latkes ever again. <laughs> I just up at the store and picked up jelly donuts. Nice. Um, and then, um, you know, um, one of my favorite Hanukkah foods is um, a Persian herb omelet known as kuku, K-U-K-U. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And, yes. and um, you know, so that's fun to make, especially it's kind of lighter with all the kind of heavier foods that come on in the season. Um, um, and I've experimented with some of some, some fritters from India and, and the Middle East and things like that. But what's become kind of a Hanukkah tradition for my family and my, my children are grown, are um we make tamales <laughs> oh and nice that started because and it we make the recipe from 52 shabbats um friday night dinners inspired by a global jewish kitchen and um so we make the masa and we use either chicken chicken fat or uh vegetable oil or my favorite is use um uh, triple refined coconut oil i think it gives it the best flavor and, and texture and then um i make a spicy beef and dried fruit stew known as simis which is very ashkenazi very eastern european also i do put chipotle peppers in it so it's very spicy and we wrap mm. that in the tamale um, we wrap that in the tamales and we steam them up and this year our big tamale party is actually the night before hanukkah because of scheduling but we try to do it every year and it's a lot of fun. And the whole idea came to me. We have so many blended families right now. And I work with Building Jewish Bridges, which is a local multi-faith, interfaith, multicultural Jewish organization. And I, at my bequest, she asked her members, what do they do that's kind of multicultural for the holidays? And there was one Mexican grandma who always made um, tamales for Christmas Eve, and she had a Jewish grandson, so she made kosher tamales for him, and that just kind of set me going, and I thought, that's such a wonderful thing, and um, I just wanted to incorporate that in my tradition. I love that. That's terrific. Well, we, we usually have, this is Beth, we usually have very traditional foods when we get together with the family for Hanukkah, because... I think everyone doesn't eat those so often, but uh, one of the things we make this time of year that really has nothing to do with the oil part of it, but just became a tradition like 30 years ago, we started making rugala, which is a like little rolled pastry 
uh, and it's made with like a very rich cream cheese, uh, mine is cream cheese, sour cream and butter in the dough. And that for us is just something we started doing when the kids were really, really little. And uh, it's really not Hanukkah for us without some rugula, even though there's no, there's no oil in it, there's no frying involved, but that's just a tradition that we started doing and started doing together as a family. And uh, we, we eat, we'll have them every year, no matter what, there's always rugula. And, and those can be, they, they do great on a, a, a holiday cookie swap kind of table environment too. We have friends, they're actually all Jewish, but they love to make Christmas cookies. And it's a homage to one of the moms who's no longer with us, who used to do all the baking by herself. Now we get together as a group and do it. And one of the things we absolutely have to bring is our regula. And even um, the woman who we do this cookie swap for, her name is Hermine. Before she passed away, she told us our regula were better than hers. Please bring yours when we do the, you know, when you do the cookie swap. So anyhow, uh, that's, that's an, a non-traditional tradition for us. And, you know, really they're wonderful any time of year, but this time of year, I usually make, I don't know, around 200 of them. Mm. That's making. a lot of regular, but, yeah. um, but I, I just wanted to chime in here though, to say that that rugula is, is rapidly becoming an official Hanukkah cookie. And I don't know if it's because it does have the dairy. American recipes for rugula do have dairy in it usually, usually cream cheese um, and butter. Um, and you're adding the sour cream is like yet another addition yeah. to it. Um, Israeli and European rugula is a yeasted dough, but I'm seeing it more and more as an official Hanukkah cookie. And I don't know it's if it's because... Um, mainstream food media are trying to identify more Jewish Jewish food to present this time of year. Um, um, but more than that, I really think it's because people just love this cookie and it's an excuse to, and it's a special occasion cookie. It's not quick to make and people just love it. So it's a good excuse to make it and eat it. Much like you start seeing Hamantaschen, which is a Purim um, cookie for a spring holiday, um, late winter, early spring holiday that you start seeing it year round just because people love it. Yeah. Yeah. That I, that definitely be true. And I guess I am seeing more and more, uh, regular at this time of year. Uh, it, it's just, I just, we just love them. And, and you have a good, you have, what kind of recipes for regular do you have in the essential Jewish baking book? Uh, yeah, thank you for asking. So I have the apricot chocolate regula in my cookbook, which is the Essential Jewish Baking Cookbook. And on my blog, I have that recipe as well um, with step-by-step -step photos. But I also have a cranberry orange regula, which of course came about when we had our first, that I, I'm sure it wasn't the first, but the first Thanksgiving that really like majorly impacted my life because I always host Thanksgiving and then um, basically we had thanks we had Hanukkah the next day but anyways it motivated me to come up with a cranberry orange regula so I have that on my blog as well and I have a cranberry jam that I give you alternatives but I make the cranberry jam for Thanksgiving anyways it's delicious and it's easy to make so I incorporated that into the regula and incorporated some orange zest into the dough and um, those are two of my favorites, and um, I know, Faith, you have a really interesting one that you just developed. Yeah, I, I uh, my first published regular recipe is on foodandwine.com, and it, it 
it takes my husband's Aunt Lee's traditional recipe and I kind of I kind of give it a Middle Eastern, Near Eastern spin with date syrup and dates and tahini and, and chopped nuts. And it just changes and spices like cardamom and cinnamon. So it changes the flavor profile um, because that's where my mouth is happiest. <laughs> yeah, same. That's why Faith and I are, get along so well. Those, those flavors make me very happy too. I don't know how anybody could hear this podcast and not get hungry. I'm my stomach's growling just hearing all this. Are you any of you are either of you aware of any misconceptions about Hanukkah that you've ever heard? Oh, I think the biggest one is the ones that the the um you know, the people my kids' friends used to think they got like Christmas eight nights a week. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's oh. you know, the, the level of presenting is not, is not that present, let's say. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, um, I think that for someone like me who came from an area where Hanukkah was a, a big cultural celebration, celebrated uh, commercially to be equal to Christmas, um, it's hard to tell people what a it's truly a minor holiday it's not a holiday that's in the in the torah which is the jewish um the the jewish bible or holy book if you want um it's it's post it it, it happened later than the events in the torah described so it it's it's a talmudic holiday i guess you could call it but um it, it's just the, the perspective on it and then most people um, they don't look behind the miracle of the eight nights of oil, which either, you know, which, you know, to a rational mind is a little weird. <laughs> and as opposed to the symbolism that's going on in the other in other parts of it. So I think the biggest thing for me was to switch from it's this big cultural holiday to understanding its its placement in kind of the Jewish calendar and the Jewish year and the Jewish liturgy. It's it's it's. It's very different than what I grew up with. It's, you know, it's not giant blow up menorahs in the store window. <laughs> and this is Beth. I, this is a logistical um, uh, mistake or, or misunderstanding. Some people aren't aware that the Jewish holidays move around because the Jewish holiday calendar is based on the lunar calendar. So that's why we could have Hanukkah starting on Thanksgiving one year and starting on Christmas, well, the next year, not necessarily exactly, but, but that's, those extremes happen. And it really just depends because we're not, you know, it doesn't happen on the 25th or on the 18th, but the same every year it moves around. And I think that's really confusing for people. I had a neighbor recently give me a Hanukkah card, like before Thanksgiving, because she was at Trader Joe's and Trader Joe's already had the Hanukkah cards out and she didn't want to miss so she bought it and, <laughs> and, and last year Hanukkah was at the end of November so correct so uh, it, uh, yeah. it can be very confusing for people and I think also therefore you know sometimes you might find an event scheduled like on the first night of Hanukkah that you really wish wasn't scheduled that night but it's hard for sometimes for people to kind of keep up with the moving around of the you know uh of the holiday but that's just how it is <laughs> and, and it isn't really and and i think the other thing faith and 
Dean is it's not really one night more important than another. Uh, yeah. I think it's people will celebrate, you know, maybe with a bigger group on one of the weekend days that it happens. Cause that's just easier. But, but every night it's just kind of nice to, you know, to take out the Hanukkah and, um, add another candle and light them. Even if it's just a few minutes of prayer and standing around, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a big deal. It's just, it's just fun and pleasant and enjoyable. How did the quarantine affect um, your being able to celebrate Hanukkah? Well, I'll go first because um, we, we, um, we were expecting our first grandchild in london england i live in california oakland california and we got out of we 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 just um we just left we had just left town um to get for that so we were quarantined i mean we were quarantined for two weeks in england and so i mean they just you know um there just was no hanukkah for us last year at least you know not one that we celebrated outwards um on the, on the in the in 2020 in 2021 we were already we had a hanukkah party we went to and then um there was uh then the, it, it became obvious you shouldn't be going to any more parties because we had the resurgence um so it was you know it was family oriented but hanukkah is a family oriented home-based celebration anyway so it's it, it works out fine if you know if you can be in your home and you and you can celebrate it it's it's not like um you need to go to there's no special service you need to go to in the synagogue there's no special place you need to go to worship it it's it's a home-based holiday yeah for for us i think every holiday was affected really the same way and that whatever we did with our family and friends really wasn't happening unless we decided to do like a candle lighting on zoom we were really just celebrating it at home um uh with you know who whoever was here so um you know i think it was the same kind of the same effect as for every other holiday that we were used to being together with you know either immediate family or or family that or friends that we really consider family. We just weren't doing that. We, we are still continuing to be, you know, extremely safe. We are at, we did have Thanksgiving this year. We are having Hanukkah with our immediate family, immediate extended family in the Bay area. I'm in San Jose um, on Sunday. I'm really looking forward to that, uh, but we're still being really cautious. We'll all test before we go and um, try to be pretty careful moving into that but yeah it was a little more lonely than normal i guess but it's not like we would be together with family and friends every single night anyways most nights are you know uh lighting the candles with whoever is at home maybe with a neighbor or two coming by as well so so kind of the same the same sort of um isolation situation as as really every other holiday uh the yeah yeah although we could always hope for a hanukkah miracle where everyone gets together and everyone has a negative test and then they come home and they're still negative <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not miracle. you know we talk about candles dean and um this is faith we talk about candles but you know for most of the history up until i don't know, the last couple hundred years or whatever 
it was even less than that maybe it was oil it was little pots of oil that had little wicks in it that people yeah. would light which is even more of a connection to what we were talking to about the the miracle of oil and when we look at hanukkah foods and oil we see that the tradition is much stronger in areas that had access to olive oil right right so we're talking about the jews from they originally were from spain and and the iberian peninsula sephardic we talk about the jews that um lived for thousands and thousands of years in italy and greece we're talking about the jews that never left the middle or near east the Mizrakis. they always had access to oil so they they have a huge huge tradition of oil-based fritters and all that kind of oil, you know, fried in oil food. In fact, they say the Egyptians are the one that discovered that if you fried a food in oil, it would kind of puff up without the need for yeast. And they also credit the Egyptians, I believe, I think I've got this right, with the discovery of, you know, a commercial as opposed to a wild yeast because of their beer making. But um, uh, so, so the Jews from Eastern Europe, when I'm an Eastern European Jew, and I really wasn't exposed to um, I was, you know, the New York ghetto, no, the not ghetto, but the New York kind of Jewish cultural Eastern European food I grew up with, uh, which is kind of Eastern European Jewish food on steroids. Um, everything is bigger, more meat, you know, as opposed to, you know, not, it's not more a cuisine potatoes. of poverty like it would have been in Eastern Europe. Um, you know, we have the they would use um, duck fat, uh, goose fat, and later chicken fat to fry things because oil wasn't really available. Or they could use butter, you know, but so it, but those are more limited and more expensive fats. So you just didn't see as much of this, the, the, the whole frying um, in oil or deep frying in oil um, um, kinds of foods. It was very different. And the first uh, you know, the, the first fritters in, in Eastern Europe were probably just like grains, like maybe barley or something like that, or, or buckwheat that had been, that were fried together. And later, maybe some shredded vegetables. Um, turnip was really popular. And then when the potato got introduced in the, in the 16th, 1600s sometime, um, eventually that was adopted as the, uh, the, the laka vegetable of choice. But it's very different than the story of oil in, in the other areas where olive oil was prevalent. Right. And I, I just, um, Dean, I just did a, an event for the International Association of Culinary Professionals that I called Donuts Across the Diaspora. But I, I talked about and, and cooked uh, in uh, 45 minutes, uh, three kinds of donuts. And it is true when you start studying fried fritters and donuts that different um, uh, parts of the Jewish um, culture will make, you know, like in there in Israel, they're not talking about latkes, they're talking about sufgani oat, but I find the sufgani jelly donuts. pardon? Jelly donuts. That's what jelly sufgani. donuts. Yeah. And, and uh, then I talked about a Moroccan donut, which is not strictly for Hanukkah, but if you were a Moroccan Jew or in that region of in North, Northwest, Northeast, Northwest Africa, uh, um, the Maghreb, you would make something called sphinx. They, they make it all year round, but if you're a Jew from that area, you're going to make this donut called sphinx. If you are a Sephardic Jew from uh, Spain or 
maybe even from Greece, although they have another version of the fritter, you're probably going to make something called bimuelos. So, uh, in your, so you're right, Faith, though, all of those areas have wonderful access to olive oil and probably always have. Oh, and you could talk about Italy, you could talk about the Bombolino, where the, the wonderful potato makes its uh, um, arrival in the donut. You put a shredded potato in the donut dough. Uh, and that's uh, another, another. And also product. the aranci, the rice fritters in Italy too. Right, right. The rice Arantini. fritters. Yep. Yep. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Um, Beth, can you talk a little bit about how the jelly donut ended up being the, 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 the probably the most beloved symbol of uh, Hanukkah, not just to women who don't want to make um, potato pancakes and electric fry pan in their kids' kindergarten classroom, but to, to many people everywhere, um, you know, um, so, you know, it's the first mention of it is like in the 1400s or something. I don't know. Can you take the story forward? Uh, you know, that's, that's actually a really good question that I think you might be more better, you might be better at answering than me. I don't actually know. Uh, I mean, I know from a food perspective, when I was studying recipes and figuring out what I was going to do in my cookbook, because I do have a Sufgani oat recipe in there, and the one that, and it can be baked or fried. To me, when I was studying all the Sufgani oat recipes and deciding what I wanted to do, it felt like it was really actually similar to a Polish panchki um, in terms of the type of dough, but that is Eastern Europe. So, so how we made that leap and how it became, and maybe because Israel is so, you know, there are, there, there are Jews from all over the world in Israel. So that would might explain how, how we though ended up on the jelly donut as the, the uh, choice. I, I don't, I don't know if I know um, so that. I know it more from a food perspective. Basically we can, we can thank the labor unions in Israel. So ah, Polish well, Jews brought up with their version of what was called the Berliner and made it popular. And then the labor unions, you know, the commercial bakeries started making this. It is a, it is a much more, there's a much more elaborate process. I think it's very doable for a home cook. I've made them often. It's, it's if you don't have a fear of frying, are you willing to do a baked version like you offer up? Um, it's not that difficult. It's, you know, time consuming, but it is a time consuming labor intensive process of, of making Sufignoro jelly donuts and the labor union supposedly started promoting them as the Hanukkah treat of Israel to give themselves um, job security, if you will. And there's supposedly <laughs> one bakery in Israel that in the month leading up to Hanukkah sells 200, 
I can't remember. It cannot be. It must be 250,000 jelly donuts total. It couldn't be per day, but I think it's, wow. yeah, it's gotta be per total, but in the month leading up to Hanukkah that they'll sell 250,000 of these and the, um, you know, the Israeli fillings are wild. Everything, you know, we yes. do jelly, maybe we'll do a little Nutella or maybe a little caramel filling, but they just go wild. <laughs> Their fillings are just incredible. Well, yeah, you could liken it if we want to use this analogy again, but you know, the way right now, if you go through your Instagram feed or, or wherever you look at your pretty pictures of food, the crazy, wonderful, fantastic decorations you're seeing all over cookies. Well, you're seeing those on the jelly donuts in Israel. I mean, it's in the, the, the trays and trays of these, you know, wonderfully decorated and then beautifully and then filled as, as Faith said, with just all kinds of amazing fillings. I, you know, I don't eat them that often. I'm very, very happy with my jelly filled versions, but I'm sure, I mean, I would, I will say I would like to be in Israel at least one time during Hanukkah and, and get to participate in that. Both of you have written cookbooks in the last few years during the pandemic. Can you both talk about your books um, to the, uh, our audience and kind of talk about what it was like to release these books during the pandemic? Sure. Um, uh, I guess I can go first. Uh, this is Beth. Uh, I wrote mine uh, very quickly, uh, and it was great that it was during the pandemic because I could just put my head down and, and shut everything else out and think about nothing but my 50 essential Jewish baking recipes nonstop, 20, pretty much 24 hours a day uh, until it was done. Uh, but it, it was interesting because in, so, so my book is, as, as I said, the essential Jewish baking cookbook and really think of it as, um, uh, like a, like a little bit of a primer on if I was an Ashkenazi Jew, a Mizrahi Jew, a Sephardic Jew, what might be the things that I grew up eating in my kitchen that my grandma made or that I might, the traditions I might want to pass on to my kids. Those were some of the things we were thinking about when we came up with the recipe list for the book. And that's what people tell me often that, oh my gosh, I always wanted to to make, you know, my grandma's challah. I always wanted to make an onion board that I can, which called a pretzel you can't find anymore. I always wanted to make, you know, the biscochos that my grandma made, but I didn't know where the recipe was. I'm so glad to find them. But the interesting thing about the pandemic was, you know, we have all of this connection by social media and email and texting and all that. But sometimes you, you know, physically would want to talk to people or give them food to taste. And we figured out ways to do it. I mean, I connected with people all over the world. I had testers all over the country. And then when I'd have like a group of um, baked goods for people to taste, I had a group in the neighborhood, I text them. And then we'd set up a table outside. I mean, it was really during some of the worst part of the pandemic and be like a six foot table. And we'd sit on one end and the baked goods would be on the other end and they'd come over and, you know, they have to take their mask off because we learned you cannot chew and taste with your mask on. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so, you know, we made some, some, uh, you know, we just, we got creative, let's just say with handling all of that kind of stuff. Mo most things happen virtually anyways, but, you know, I had to do a lot of, and thank, you know, thank God for, 
for all of this technology we have because I was texting with people. I have a couple of close friends uh, who are Sephardic Jews and their their moms are still alive and some other relatives and. I would text them with questions. They'd text their relatives. When I was working on the recipe, I'd send them pictures. They'd send it to their mom or their grandma or their auntie. Does this look right? And, you know, they were sending me their pictures. And, you know, it just were some of that probably would have happened that way anyways. In some cases, I might have, you know, flown and tried to be in the kitchen with these people or driven, and I couldn't do that. But I made it work. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of what, came you know what the end result of all of that hard work and uh i'm so glad that i had the opportunity to do it but i think the tasting part was possibly the most challenging and and a lot of shopping you know i wasn't really going into the store so it was you know what is the best place to order the pick delivery from are they going to give me the right ingredients you know those kinds of things too but uh it all worked out nice thank you so um, my story is a little different in that it, well, the COVID did give me space to work on this because I was literally grounded. My husband and I travel maybe six months a year. So um, I like to think I could have done this cookbook anyway, and I was planning to do it anyway, but COVID facilitated my <laughs> being home and having my you know, sitting in my chair and, and actually working. But my background is that for 13 years, I've been a recipe columnist for the J, jweekly.com, which is a, a online and print um, Jewish newspaper here in Northern California. And I had a, a significant amount of recipes that gave me a place to start. And um, I was looking for recipes that either have that originated in those columns or were written especially for the book or I, I had and hadn't have you know recipes I had never published that express my I don't I'm not looking to recreate um, a classic I'm looking to um, to ad adapt and adopt different food ways and that that identifies Jewish for me and create new big flavors modern taste um, recipes and I had my challenges with COVID. Um, sourcing ingredients was really difficult. I was very lucky that I was able to get delivery from a, a, a shop that had a wide assortment of international ingredients that I could use. And I ended up finishing the book and finishing the recipe testing in London. And I was really, really concerned. Would I be able to get my Jewish ingredients and my Middle Eastern and Near East ingredients in, in London? And we did have to take our, our shopping cart and walk like an hour to the Jewish neighborhood to get those ingredients, but we were surrounded by excellent Turkish and Middle Eastern markets. So that part was really much easier than I ever imagined. And I was very lucky that when the book published, things had started to open up again. So I was able to have in-person events and my book one year publication birthday my book's birthday is the is the 14th and I, I and I just would have just it's just been a year full of fun events and meeting people and talking about Shabbat and Jewish food and the cookbook and it's just been a, a great year so I feel very lucky I had time to write the book and I feel very lucky it came out when there was a time that you could get back together and meet with people even if it was limited or through mass you were master or whatever yeah, that's a really good point.
Faith. Uh, I feel like my timing was both wonderful and not. I didn't have as many in-person events as I would have loved to have, but I am. I have started doing some of that. And the I think my first uh, big in-person event was at Omnivore Books. I know, Faith, you had one too. And oh, what a joy that was, not only because Omnivore Books is such a wonderful cookbook store, but just to see the white yes. of everybody's eyes and look into <laughs> people people's eyes and see them responding in in the same room and you know shaking their head and in understanding or raising their hand and asking a question and me being able to respond it was just an absolute it was an absolute joy and I love doing in-person events um, Faith and I did one for a temple fundraiser in Napa at in August, I think. And again, what a thrill it was to be in the room. And, you know, I, I did holibrating and to have people respond to what you're doing as you're doing it like that. It, it's just a, it's just wonderful. And then to be able to talk to them about the book, have them come and buy the book after they see what, you know, I'm all about and the content of the book is about, it's just a really wonderful thing. And I hope I hope that we can continue to stay open and doing these kinds of things because I, I really enjoy the interaction with human beings in person. Dean, there's one other consequence of COVID I forgot to mention. My book was stuck for a month off the coast on Long Beach and it missed Hanukkah. Hanukkah was very early. Oh my God. Early, but yeah, so we had to push the, we had to, we had to push the, um, the publication date to December 14th. So I missed, totally missed Hanukkah. Um, and now I had a strong pre-sale um, for people who thought they'd be getting the book for Hanukkah. And I, I did try to let people know that if they wanted, I'd send them a book plate. But um, and, but then we did sell out our first run in, in about a month once it was published. So there was a really great reaction to it. But it, you know, I had totally forgotten that one of the reasons the world was so open is I had another month while the, while the book was in a container off the coast of Long Beach. Um, and the other thing I like to say is about virtual presentations. My reach has been so much more incredible than because people are so accepting of virtual presentations, whether they're Zoom or YouTube or whatever now, Facebook Live. Um, they, um, it just, people are willing to do that where before maybe it was a second class presentation to them. So I've been able to get my message out and the story about my book and the story behind my, the recipes and about Jewish food and all that uh, on a much wider audience. But I still do love an in-person. One of the things I love most about going in-person is going to every, trying to talk to as many people who are there as possible and finding out, do they cook? You know, how do they celebrate this holiday or Shabbat or whatever? What brought them there today? What's their favorite food? Have they ever used this ingredient or that ingredient? And I just really enjoy that connection. Yeah, that those are great points, um, Faith. Uh, I I adore in person, but I was also so grateful for the virtual events that I was able to do. Uh, and, and they live on in some cases. So I did an event for the National Museum of American Jewish History last November before Hanukkah of the baked and fried donuts. Um, and they did it on they did it on Zoom, but it also streams to Facebook. And you can still go to their Facebook page, look at their videos and see the video of me making those donuts. I mean, it lives on. There's like 8,000 plus views on it. It's one of their most viewed videos. And 
I mean, I am also so grateful for that. And I, I think that that's one of the really positive aspects of what has happened with COVID is that I think we have, it, as you said, Faith, accepted um, that, that it's not a second class event when it's a Zoom event or some kind of virtual event. It can be just as wonderful uh, in its own way. It's different. It's not the same, but it's wonderful. And, and as, as a bonus, in many cases, it can live on and, and be there for people you know, beyond the date that it happened. So that's pretty right. awesome too. So I try to make my in-person events something that's very tactile for, well, I mean, I haven't done hollow braiding. I certainly could, but you know, it's not my, it's not my wheelhouse. I'll leave that. I'll call you in for those, but, um, it is um you now. know, I, I, I like to do spice mix workshops. My book contains several recipes for spice mixes that you, from the Ju global Jewish kitchen, from Yemen, from, um, Ethiopia, from the Middle East and elsewhere. And we make those spice mixes. We talk about the book, we talk about Jewish food, we talk about the Jewish spice trade, and we make the spice mixes and people go home with the spice mixes. And um, I think that's, um, you know, I, I think that in order, otherwise, why come out? You know, it's just as easy to hear people talk on Zoom and you don't have to get dressed up or drive and find parking or whatever so I tried you know that's that's my thing I try to make it an experience they couldn't otherwise have and I I want to say this is maybe an addendum here or an add-on or a corollary but uh in my book was all about essential and and keeping to the traditions and and also trying to keep the ingredients to what you can find in your local big box store but one of my loves, uh, if you look up at my blog and also my Facebook, is that I love Middle Eastern ingredients. And I also love the fact, and that's kind of broadened my view of, as Faith has said, what really is Jewish food. And it's so much more than the Ashkenazi Eastern European food I grew up with. And in fact, I think it was 2014, um, they were doing a, this special talk series at my temple that was sponsored by another organization and the name escapes me now. They wanted me and my partner on our, my Tasting Jerusalem group, Serene Wallace, to do a class. And they wanted it to be very traditional, you know, kugel, that kind of Eastern European food. And and Serene and I kind of pushed back because we really wanted to introduce some of these flavors that, um, Jews in other parts of the world, including the Middle East, are familiar with. And uh, at first they were reticent, but then they let us um, they let us go ahead and do that. And we did some of the recipes kind of from the Jerusalem cookbook, that kind of thing. And I think we did majadra and we did these. Um, so that's uh, rice and lentils, majadra. Uh, yes, thank you, rice and lentils. And we did a, a, the the thumbprint with the, the the cookie with the the date and walnut filling that also has uh, orange blossom water and rose water in it and oh and we did the eggplants with the chermula and everyone loved it people loved it they loved being introduced to these different flavors and kind of that connection that you like even if you grew up like me on the east coast originally and then moved west and you know all this ashkenazi very meat as you said faith meat forward potatoes all that kind of stuff there's so much more to to jewish food and from other parts of the world and anyways i i absolutely love 
all of the flavors and the spice mixes faith is talking about it's it's life-changing when you start incorporating that into your cooking Taste do either you too. <laughs> do either of you have recipes from your cookbooks that you like to make particularly in this time of year in the winter time well my family demanded um my son and his partner were over this weekend and I was going to make a pot roast and um, I, and my favorite is the pomegranate molasses pot roast or brisket. And my husband's favorite is the Ethiopian flavored um, spice pot roast. And um, he, they pretty much demanded the Ethiopian one. <laughs> so <laughs> I just made that Saturday night. I would say, yes, yes. The people want, um, because of the food in my cookbook is the food I feed my friends and family. Mm -hmm. It's what they ask for. And it's been a very interesting conjunction because I have a column and every two weeks I have to come up with new recipes, but they want the recipes they always get, which are the recipes that are codified in the book. So I have to balance out new recipes with old. Um, I wanted to just talk a, a bit. I it just flashed in me on my memory that the Dutch butter cookie that has spread all over Scandinavia and the world started as a Hanukkah cookie. So for what it's worth. I did not know that. Well, that's, a, that that's according to Gil Marks, who is kind of like yeah. the official slash unofficial food historian of, of the Jews, the late yeah. Gil Marks, the late yeah. wonderful Gil Marks. I, I ordered one of his books and used it regularly while I was working on my cookbook as a one of my many, many sources to try mm -hmm. to understand uh, where to start with a recipe. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful um, historian of Jewish food. He was a caterer, a chef, a food writer, a rabbi, and a historian, kind of like all in one package. And he left us way too soon. Uh, as far as from my book, I mean, of course, uh, I would tell you to absolutely look at the Sufganiot and think about baking if you don't like frying because they're really wonderful. Uh, but kind of thinking more broadly about um, the, just this time of year and what's kind of wonderful, um, there is a challah bread pudding recipe in there that, you know, something if you have leftover challah, and I know people always joke if I say that, are you kidding? Whoever has leftover challah. But if you do or if you don't, just, you know, make an extra loaf or buy an extra loaf and make this. It's, it's really like almost like an overnight French toast kind of situation. And it's so warm and comforting. Or if you're having people visiting and you want to have something, you throw it together the night before and just get up in the morning and throw it in the oven and have a hot breakfast ready for people. Um, or really just look at all the different breads. The breads are, you know, most of them, all of them really are very approachable. Bread is so wonderful in the winter with, with soups and stews and things like the pomegranate, you know, molasses brisket that Faith is talking about. It's nice to have some bread with it. You know, look at the, the rye bread, look at the, there's three different challah recipes in there. Um, give it a shot. You don't have to be super comfortable with all kinds of one, you know, crazy techniques or yeast, just give it a shot. I used to be afraid of dough and afraid of yeast and look at me now. So if I can do it, anyone can. That's what I always tell people. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that we get in, we, we know what we know and we're afraid of what we don't know, but in this age of, of, of being able to see videos and how to do everything, um, and, and with really good instructions like you have in Beth's book, 
there's no need to have a fear of frying, a fear of yeast, a fear of phyllo dough. Um, I think that that you know it's just just break it down to steps and go slow and give yourself time and space, and you can make just about anything. Totally agree. I want to end by asking both of you, what's next for both of you? Um, well, we're traveling again. So, uh, you know, I'm always looking for new foods. And in fact, we just came back from, um, um, from Sicily, Naples and Rome. And um, I had this amazing, amazing sauce for pasta. That's basically onions and white wine in, mm. in Naples. And for some reason they call it Genovese sauce. And I end up making a pot roast out of that, which was amazing. Lots and lots of onions. Um, so I continue to, to travel and to look for new ideas and visit Jewish communities where I can. Um, I'm looking to maybe start a newsletter and I'm working on the concept of what I call maximum wow. So big flavor with the minimal effort. So you get lots of good kind of week weeknight everyday cooking because Shabbat is the holiday that comes every week. And I do give make ahead steps because most people have to work on a Friday anyway. But I'd like to I'd like people to enjoy these flavors all year round, all week. So 365 days, not just 52 weeks. And for me, I definitely want to write another book or more. Uh, the question is, there's a few on the table of what what that might be. I mean, obviously, there are not only 50 essential Jewish baking recipes. So obviously, book two could easily be an option. Uh, I also uh, have been in, as I said, I have this group called Tasting Jerusalem with my, uh, I do it with a lifelong friend and, and food person, Serene Wallace. And, um, you know, we absolutely are in love with, with Middle Eastern ingredients and cuisines and often try to see how we can adapt those, as Faith mentioned earlier, to not only learning about where they come from and, and why they're used the way they are in, in you know, in their origin, but how we can get used to them and, and apply them even to other foods that we make and use them in our kitchen every day. So, and I also uh, come, my family itself, my immediate family is a multicultural family. So my husband is Korean American and his parents were born in Hawaii and his grandparents were born in Korea. So not only do I, um, feel like it's really, it's just happens to personally be super important to me to leave behind a legacy of my Judaism, but it's also really important to me to leave behind a legacy, at least to my family of my husband's family's food heritage. So on my blog, you will also see uh, kalbi, which are grilled Korean short ribs and mandu, which are Korean uh, dumplings and Portuguese sausage, rice and eggs, which is very Hawaiian and um, you know, there might be a book in there somewhere about uh, my multicultural food traditions. So um, I definitely want to write another book. I'm also spending a lot of time on a platform called Kitch, K-I-T-T-C-H, which they're calling the sort of um, a food uh, platform for a new generation. But basically, I'm live streaming cooking demos um, and so you can find me over there. I love the interaction with human beings. I love being in front of the camera as well as being behind the camera. And I'm working on my blog like crazy. Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to give a shout out for her blog. 
um, did you just say the O-M-Y, uh, O-M-G, yummy.com? Yep. And then um, also the, uh, the Tasting Jerusalem group on Facebook is a really great group of people and a great group of recipes. And as well as you have a, you have a page for your blog on Facebook as well. Correct. And um, I have a website, faithkramer.com, F-A-I-T-H-K-R-A-M-E-R.com. And people could reach me there. And um, right now it's a pretty static page about my book, um, but I'm hoping to make it live and include more recipes and photos and, and some of and information about the food I find while I travel there as well, as well as to launch the newsletter. And as well as at jweekly.com where I have my recipes uh, archived there. And I'm looking yes. forward to your newsletter, Faith. Yes, and Faith, I, I want to. Uh, so I, it's one of those things, right? You know, you have to sit down and do it. Huh? And, and I've been kind of trying to figure out what my scope should be and what I want to cover. And I'm not going to do it till I have that figured out. You'll get there. Beth, yeah. Beth and Faith, I want to thank you both for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you. Um, this will be airing on Hanukkah. So I want to wish you both um, a very happy Hanukkah. Thank you so much. And thank you, Dean, for this opportunity. Thank you, Dean, so much for having me back. And Faith, it's always a pleasure to be uh, talking with you and um, to have the opportunity to share both of our books and our, our interesting and different perspectives on uh, Jewish food and food in general. This was great. That was my conversation with Faith Kramer and Beth Lee about the tradition and the foods of Hanukkah. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did recording it. Please be with us this week as we talk to more guests on Hanukkah week. We're going to have um, tomorrow, we're going to have Beth Lee talking about her book and her website, OMG Yummy. And then we're going to have Faith Kramer, who's going to be on talking about her book, uh, 52 Shabbats, and also her website content as well. And then on, let's see, Thursday, we're going to have Kim Kushner talking about her book, Modern Table, and website as well. And uh, that's going to complete the week. I hope you have a really great um, time this week. I hope if you and your family are celebrating Hanukkah, I want to wish a very heartfelt happy Hanukkah to you. And I hope you enjoy these episodes that we're providing this week. I hope that uh, you can share these uh, episodes with friends on social media. Uh, we love uh, we love it when people uh, introduce new uh, listeners to our audience and uh we always encourage people to share this on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, anywhere you want. Hope you all have a really great week and you're making some wonderful holiday foods this week. Keep on cooking.